Uh, Genesis chapter number two is where my text comes from if you're following along. And then also in Luke chapter number 22. And you know the drill. Please remain standing in honor of God's word. Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And then Luke chapter 22 verse 54 said, says, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed from a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You're also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. Then about a half hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, and this is the um, PG virgin, by the way, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how that he had said to him before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept Bitterly. Today we are beginning a brand new series called Relationship Repair. And I want to minister to you from the subject overcoming the wall of shame. The wall of shame. Shame is one of the greatest um, things that breaks relationship in our life. It gets in the way of reconciliation, and it's one of the things that God wants us to overcome if we're going to repair worthwhile relationships. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your power and by your grace to every single heart, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. Relationship repair. This is an important subject. It applies to everybody. This is not just about romantic relationships. Um, it's not just about married people. This applies to single people. It applies to parents, children. It applies to employees, bosses, friends, coworkers, students, teenagers, human beings. If you are a human being, you have encountered, will encountered, and we're going to see in just a minute how important relationships are. Matter of fact, we have been made for relationships. The very first thing that God says, or one of the first things after he creates Adam is, it's not good for man to be alone. In other words, he needs a relationship. There was a famous research project that was done on relationships. It was called the Alameda County Study. It was headed by Harvard social scientists, and it took place over a nine-year period. And they tracked the lives of 7,000 people, residents of Alameda County in California. And the findings were pretty interesting. They found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than the most relationally connected people. They discovered people who have bad health habits, smoking, poor eating patterns, obesity, alcohol use, and so on, but strong relational connections live significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. And so they found out that it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than broccoli all by yourself. I mean, I think that's good news right there. The Journal of AMA, they reported some interesting things about relationships as well. They said that stronger emotional connections, deeper relationships, people who had those did four times better fighting off illness than those who were more 
isolated. When I thought about this whole thing about isolation, I thought, man, can you see the enemy at work, even through COVID, right? Isolating people, keeping people apart. I mean, the science shows how that affects us negatively. And that's why last week I started harping on, and this week I'll continue to harp on, time to get back to church. Yeah, you right there. You who's looking at me on the other side of that camera, out at Walmart, seen you shopping, went on vacation, got on the plane. Time to get back to church. Anyway, they found out that people with stronger emotional connections, deeper relationships, they did four times better fighting off illness than those who were more isolated. Those with stronger relational connections were less susceptible to colds. They even found out that they produced less mucus than relationally unconnected subjects. I'm not making this stuff up. According to the study, unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. I mean, this is what the, I mean, it says it right there. Anyway, the Bible was right from the very beginning. It's not good for man to be alone. We were made for relationships. Matter of fact, our destinies are tied to relationships. You hear people say this all the time. I'm self-made. Lie. You're not self-made. Well, nobody's ever helped me with anything. Another lie. First of all, you're not self-made because God made you. And when God made you, he equipped you. He gave you all the gifts, talents, and abilities that you need in order to fulfill your destiny. So even if you believe the lie that nobody has ever helped you with anything, the truth of the matter is you're still not self-made because God equipped you with the stuff that you would need in order to be successful on the earth when you walk in your destiny. But the truth of the matter is even if you believe you're self-made, you're really not because other people have sown into your life, whether it's been a parent a mom or a dad, whether it's been a sibling, whether it's been a friend, whether it's been a school teacher, even if nobody walked up to you and said, I'm going to open this door for you, people sowed into your life in order to get you to the place that you are at today. And so all of us need relationships in order to fulfill our destiny. It's one of the main truths of the scripture. Adam could not fulfill his destiny alone. God gave him Eve. Abraham could not fulfill his destiny alone. God gave him Sarah. David could not fulfill his destiny alone. God gave him Jonathan. Elisha could not fulfill his destiny alone. God gave him Elijah. Paul couldn't fulfill it alone. God gave him Barnabas. Timothy could not fulfill fulfill it alone. God gave him Paul. Esther could not fulfill hers alone. God gave her Mordecai. Mordecai. Mary could not fulfill hers alone. God gave her Joseph. Joseph of the Old Testament could not fulfill his alone. God gave him Pharaoh. Samuel could not fulfill his destiny alone. God gave him Eli. Ruth could not fulfill her destiny alone. God gave her Boaz. And even Jesus needed disciples to help him fulfill his destiny. Why? Not that he needed help with the cross, but he needed help with the message. If Jesus didn't have disciples, the message would have died with Jesus. And the destiny for God to reach the whole world with the gospel would have never been fulfilled. And this is just, it's not just one person in our lives that we need in order to fulfill our destiny. We need many people along the way. Bosses need employees. You know, you ever get the boss who thinks they can do it all by themselves? I do like the littlest part of the whole weekend. 
Do you know what goes on behind the weekend? You know, and the, the ushers, the greeters, the tech team, the, the worship team, the video team, the lights, all that. I, I got like the littlest part. They're, they're doing stuff I have no idea how to do. And if I ever tried, I'd screw it up. Bosses need employees. Athletes need teammates. A great quarterback behind a bad offensive line will never fulfill their destiny. How did Patrick Mahomes do since he lost both of his tackles in the Super Bowl? He was under duress all day because even the best people need other people. Kids need parents. Parents need partners. Everything and everyone needs to be connected to someone in order to succeed. Our destiny is linked to other people. That's why we should always treat one another like our destiny is in their hands because you never know. Who it is that God wants to connect you to in order to bring you to the place that God has designed you to arrive at. And so God has created us to be in relationships and he uses relationships to assist us, but the devil uses relationships to twist us. Relationships can be for our benefit or they could be to our detriment. Let me say that again because that was fun to say. God uses relationships in order to assist us, but the enemy uses relationships in order to twist us. And the word twist in the Bible is a a Greek word that literally translated, it comes out to be wicked, as in wicker furniture. You might have heard me share this before. Wicker furniture is made out of small reeds that aren't naturally twisted in the form that they wind up in. But they are soaked, and then after they are soaked, they twist them into a particular form. And then when they dry, they remain in that twisted form forever. And a bad relationship, a wrong relationship, a relationship sent by the enemy into your life will twist you. It'll pervert you. It'll make you a shell of who God has created you to be. Let me give you a few examples of that. First of all, David and Bathsheba, twisted David. Samson and Delilah, twisted. Cain and Abel, Judas and Jesus. I could preach right from that relationship for a long time. Because by the way, just because you get involved in a twisted relationship, especially if the twisted relationship is something where somebody does something to you and you didn't expect them to do something to you, God can still use that twist to cause you to triumph. Matter of fact, if it wasn't for Judas, Jesus would have never went to the cross. I wrote a book. It's called The Benefits of an Enemy. How many of you know sometimes in life you need a good enemy? Sometimes in life you ought to thank God for a good enemy. Sometimes in life you'd never get to where you're going to unless God allowed for an enemy to walk into your life where the enemy sent an, an, a, a bad relationship into your life that God wound up using for the good. But the enemy uses relationships to twist us because he knows that our destiny is tied to them. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 33 puts it like this. Don't be fooled. Bad company ruins good character. Relationships are one of our greatest resources on the planet. Someone said, if you show me your friends, I will tell you what you're eventually going to be like. You've heard the statement before, birds of a feather flock together. You can't be an eagle if you're always hanging out with the chickens. Two peas in a pod. They're all cut from the same cloth. You get my point. Relationships can either make us or break us. God uses them to assist us. The enemy uses them to twist us. And so here is the big question when it comes to relationships. Greatest resource you have in life is relationships. Should I repair it or should I remove it? That's the biggest question that you can ever answer in your life. If all of what I just taught you is true, and it is, even if you don't really think it's true, it is true, right? 
if everything I taught you is, is true, that God used them to assist us, our destiny is tied to them, we've been created for relationships, and that the enemy sends relationships into our lives in order to twist us, then the most important question that you can ask yourself as it, it relates to relationships is should I repair it or should I remove it from my life? Should I keep it or kill it, mend it or move on? And how do you know what is the right answer? Well, that's a loaded question, and I'll probably unpack that more and more in this series, but I want to give you three questions to ask yourself to answer the question, repair it or remove it. Number one, is it a dangerous drain or is there mutual gain? You ever get around certain people? They, they, they drain all your energy. They drain all your time. They drain all your resources. There's no reciprocity in the relationship. And so I like to say it like this. If it's a sucker, remove it. If it's a supplier, repair it. If it's a sucker, suck in all the energy. Suck in all the life. Suck in all the resources out of you. If it's leaving you empty and it's leaving you drained, then remove it. But if it's supplying, if, it is, if there is reciprocity, any healthy relationship, there is reciprocity. Any relationship that is one-sided is an abusive relationship. Abuse is not just a, you know, physical smacking somebody around, but abuse is when all I do is give, 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 and all you do is take, 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 take. That's an abusive relationship. I just described some of y'all's relationship with God. My name is Jimmy. I'll take all you give me. Take, 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 take. How does God get anything back from us? Not that he needs anything back from us. Reciprocity is healthy relationship. So is it a dangerous drain or is there mutual gain? Number two, does it support my destiny or does it drive me to insanity? When I'm around this person, am I being driven toward or being helped to further my destiny? Am I motivated by them, helped by them, replenished by them, spurred on to love and good works by them, challenged to uh, to uh, live moral and to be on the moral high ground, inspired to dream, supported, affirmed, properly loved? Or do they bring out the worst in me? When I'm around them, do I feel like I'm going insane, losing my mind, losing my identity, losing who I am, devolving instead of evolving, spirally downward or moving onward and upward? Do they bring out the best in me or drive me to insanity? Do I regret who I am after I'm in their presence? Does my conscience prick me from being in their presence? Do I sense a problem in my spirit but keep pushing it away because I'm afraid to move on and cut ties? Destiny or insanity? Number three, third question. Repair or remove. Does it help me get closer to Jesus or further away from Jesus? Probably the most important question that you can ask yourself. Do they help me to reflect the light of Christ? Or do they pull me back to a love for the world? Do they sharpen my spirit or deaden my soul? Do they have a biblical worldview that inspires me to live for Christ or a relative worldview that causes me to doubt my faith? Can I be open with them about the things of God or do I have to be careful about bringing up Christ in their presence? When I leave them and I'm with them, do I feel dirty or clean, Christ-like or Christ-compromised? Remove or repair. Work towards fixing what is broken or what I like to say, exercise the gift of goodbye. Goodbye is a gift. Some of the greatest decisions that you ever make are the decisions to move on from certain situations. 
and especially from certain people. Because if relationships can either assist us or twist us, then the greatest thing that I could know is should I stay in this thing or should I move on from this relationship? Now, that's easier said than done, the gift of goodbye, because it's easy to get rid of a hater. And it's like, forget you. It's hard to get rid of somebody that you've entangled your heart with. And that's why it is so important to make sure you guard your heart. Scripture says that, doesn't it? Guard your heart, for out of it come the issues of life. And so even though we ought to be people who give people the benefit of the doubt, are generally trusting people because, you know, that's what love is. You're not suspicious of people and all that. And I understand there are different dispositions. I think we ought to guard our heart. Before we allow somebody into our heart, we have to realize it's not that we're being standoffish because you can be friendly but not allow somebody into your heart. Just because I smile at you doesn't mean I'm going to tell you all about my innermost deep secrets. Before I let you into my heart, I've got to know that you could be trusted with the most precious thing that I possess, my heart. And so we have to be careful who we allow to be intertwined with our heart. Because once your heart gets hooked or hitched, then it's hard to move on from that situation. And there's a lot of ways to hit your heart that are unhealthy. And I'm going to talk about this in this series. I don't know if I will or not. But people ask me all the time, well, Pastor, why can't I have sex before I'm married? Because one of the biggest ways to attach your heart to somebody else is through sexual intercourse. And what happens at that point, and that's why you see kids like 14, 15 years old, they break up. It's like they've gone through a divorce. They're like in a room crying for weeks on end. They're like, it's just a, you know, it's just a three-month girlfriend. What's going on? Three-month boyfriend. They get hitched their heart. And now their spirits have to be ripped apart from one another. And when you rip a spirit apart from another spirit, it is difficult to do. And so be careful who you hit your heart to, because if you hit your heart to the wrong person, it'll be an inhibition to be able to having the gift of goodbye in your life. I wish I was had an older mind when I was younger, don't you? Right? That's why I listen to me, young people. Listen to your God-honoring, God-following parents. You know, I have to qualify that because some parents are not God-honoring. Sometimes they're not God, you know, uh, following. But if they're God-honoring and God-loving, listen to them. They've been there. They've done that. Parents don't look at your kids like you weren't there and didn't do that. Amen, Pastor. I could spend the rest of my time on that, but let me just say this to somebody. That saying goodbye to the wrong relationship is worth the pain. The pain now is better for the long-term gain. Some of the most difficult things you have to do are the best things that you could ever do. I could spend the rest of my time on that, but let me move on. Right relationships, I want to talk about those, are worth repairing. Oftentimes we talk about how to move on from toxic relationships. I'll probably circle back in the series and talk about that. But right relationships are worth repairing. And for, for that, let's turn our attention back to Peter and Jesus. Peter and Jesus, they had a tight relationship. I mean, this was a very, very close relationship. Jesus had 12 disciples. Of the 12 disciples who were friends, three of them were inner circle friends, Peter, James, and John. And you've heard me share before, the reason why Peter, James, and John were always with him is because their names were emblematic of his mission. 
Peter means rock. James is the Gentile version of Jacob, which means supplanter. And John means grace. And so he took Peter, James, and John. He came to supplant the law with grace. He took them everywhere he went. And so this was a close relationship. Peter was the second of the disciples to follow Jesus. The first was his brother, Andrew. If you were listening in on Wednesday night at 8 o'clock instead of watching TV or something like that, during Bible study, you might know this, right? He was the second of the disciples. The first disciple to follow Jesus was Andrew. Andrew was John the Baptist's disciple before he was Jesus' disciple. But the purpose of any disciple under Christ is to push people toward Jesus. And so what happened was when Jesus came on the scene, John told Andrew, follow him. When Andrew followed him, he brought his brother Peter into the discipleship corps. And then the two of them, they went out and they evangelized Philip, who was from their hometown. And then Philip brought in Bartholomew and it was a domino effect because that's what is supposed to happen if each one of us will win one we'll be a part of a chain that brings many to Christ and so this was a close relationship he was one of the originals he left it all to follow Jesus all for Peter was significant a lot of times we have this this image in our mind of all the disciples being dysfunctional we have this image in our mind of them all being broke and having nothing better to do. And so they just joined this vagabond group that went around following Jesus. And, you know, like the kids today, they didn't wash their hair, wore raggedy old clothes. What's up with that style, by the way? It's actually a style thing right now where kids just leave their hair greasy. Am I, am I lying about this? Come on, help me out, young people. Isn't this the thing now? People, you know, they just don't wash their hair for days. Anyway, we think that's what the disciples were all about. But Peter was a successful fisherman. He had an extensive fishing business. And when he followed Jesus, he gave up that. It was, he was successful. He was married. He left that. His mother-in-law lived with him. All right, good reason to follow Jesus. No, just playing. He put his life on hold for Jesus and sacrificed family time for Jesus. Him and Jesus were tight. Anytime Jesus needed friends he could count on, he leaned on Peter, James, and John. Peter was one of those who went a little further with him in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray at Jesus' most painful and critical moment in his earthly ministry. Peter was one of the ones that he took with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. He was one of the three that he took with him to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Pete and Jesus were tight. Jesus even gave them a nickname. You don't give nicknames to people you're not tight with. You don't just walk up to somebody and go, what's your name? And they, you know, I don't know, they say, Simon, you're like, you're the rock. They look at you like you were crazy, right? He gave them a nickname. This was a close relationship. But then it happened. Unexpected circumstances arose that were out of Peter's control that put pressure on the relationship. Circumstances that Pete never thought he was going to have to deal with. He watched Jesus open blind eyes. He watched Jesus unstop deaf ears. He watched him make lame people walk, walk on water, calm storms, feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch of crackers and sardines. I mean, Jesus to him was invincible. He was undoubtedly the savior of the world and the one who he had pledged his allegiance to with his actions and his words. Famously, when Jesus announced at the Last Supper that he was going to die and you know, be handed over. Peter stood up. He said, I'll fight with you to the death. And he meant it. 
Peter meant it when he said he wasn't. He wasn't fronting. He was being serious when he said that with all of his heart. Matter of fact, when they first came and they got Jesus, Peter was the only one who took out his sword. He cut off the uh, 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 high priest's servant's ear. His name was Malchus. Peter was willing to fight for Jesus. But then the unexpected, the challenging, the difficult, the fearful, what seemed too difficult for one man to bear took place. Jesus was taken captive right before Peter's eyes. He's now watching as Jesus is being whipped and beaten by the Roman guards and his crucifixion seems inevitable. And in Peter's mind, his world came crashing down. He started to doubt everything that he believed. Was he really the Savior? Was he really the Messiah? Should he have given up uh, so much for him? How could he do those kind of miracles but yet be helpless at the hands of these people? These circumstances put a strain on Peter in every way, and his emotions were on tilt, and his life was on the line. He loved Jesus. He gave up so much for Jesus, but now he's watching his hero and his friend getting flogged and prepared to be crucified, and anyone who is associated with him are going to lose their life. And a servant girl... If you read John's gospel, not just any servant girl. If you read John's gospel, the relative of Malchus was the one who actually asked Peter, aren't you with him? It's amazing how the devil plays, doesn't he? he he'll, he'll take those moments in your life, put them right up in your face. To put pressure on you, because if he puts pressure on you, he can put pressure on relationships that are destiny relationships. And all of a sudden, that which was a source of strength in your life becomes, in some way, hurt or broken. And this difficulty, it caused Peter to deny Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. And the inner turmoil manifested on the outside when Peter, in a very out-of-character way, began to curse and swear. And you know, sometimes when people do things that are out of character, it's a sign that there's turmoil going on on the inside. And he didn't know how to cope with the circumstances that were thrust upon him and that were before him. And in his denial, this right relationship got fractured and it found itself in need of repair. Why do I tell you the story like that? Because I want you to understand how right relationships, godly relationships, relationships that God has meant for your life and destined for your life can become fractured. They can become fractured when circumstances that you don't expect get dumped onto your life and suddenly the relationship that is a source of strength becomes broken. A marriage that experiences the unexpected. Financial pressure, sickness pressure, kid pressure, in-law pressure, work pressure. You knew when you said, I do, that you really did love them, and they loved you. You knew that you were mutually beneficial for one another, but you didn't know life would throw this at you when it threw that at you, and now there is a fracture in the relationship that needs to be repaired. A parent whose relationship with a child has gone awry when something happened that nobody expected. They got introduced to drugs. 
They got involved in a bad relationship. They were hanging out with the wrong friends. They got sucked into something on the internet. Peer pressure pulled them in. Hormones kicked in. Life got hard. You didn't expect it, but the relationship got strained. And as as a result of the strain, it got fractured and it needs repair. Time doesn't permit me to call out every situation and circumstance. But here's what I do know. I do know that there are worthwhile, good, godly relationships that are meant to assist us in life that come under inordinate amount of stress and because of the stress they become fractured and they find themselves in need of repair. But here's what God told me to tell you. Those relationships are worth fighting for. Don't fold on a relationship that God has sent into your life that you know is ordained by God in your life. Fight For those relationships, your relationship with your spouse is worth fighting for, and your kids is worth fighting for, and your extended family fighting for, certain friendships worth fighting for, your relationship with your church is worth fighting for. You know, one of the things that shocked me during COVID, our church did so well, but there were some people who came under pressure and severed their relationship with the church. Sad. They don't understand how relationships that are God-sent are meant to assist us. Don't let the enemy short-circuit the destiny of God by causing you to quit on a worthwhile relationship. If God set it up and God sanctions it, then fight to repair it. And here's one of the big things that stands in the way of relationship repair. It's what I call the wall of shame. Look at our text. Verse number 41, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how that he had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Watch this. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. The word wept describes somebody that mourns for the dead. Jesus wasn't even dead yet. But he wasn't just mourning like, he was bitterly weeping, sloppy, deep pain, overwhelming. Peter was filled with shame for fleeing and forsaking his friend and a savior. And if you read the rest of the narrative, especially in the gospel of John, because of the wall of shame that was automatically erected, Peter became separated from the relationships that were most important, including the ministry and including his relationship with the Lord. Shame is often a wall that shuts off a relationship that should be repaired from being repaired. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I acted like that. I can't believe I said that or did that. I don't know what got into me. I can't face that person ever again. I can't recover from stooping that low. There's no use trying. I went too far. There's no way they will ever want to see me again. The the soundtrack of shame. Shame is part of the devil's game to stop relationships that should be repaired from being repaired. And Satan will play that soundtrack of shame in our minds over and over again to separate us from the relationships God has meant for us. This is especially true of our relationship with God himself and with each other. Don't think for a moment that Peter wasn't hearing that soundtrack. You're not the rock. You didn't stand strong when the Savior needed you. You folded like a cheap blanket. You said you would fight to the death, but you were all talking, no no action. He needed you, and you deserted him. What kind of friend are you? He doesn't want you anymore, love you anymore, care for you anymore. He never wants to see you anymore. The soundtrack of shame. And the devil is sneaky. 
Because he plays on our guilt. Plays on our guilt. He plays on what we did that was wrong. Can I just, can I help you all out? We all do wrong stuff. I mean, you ever meet people that, (gasps) they're shocked by somebody doing something wrong. I'm like, have you looked in the mirror lately? Like we all do stuff that's wrong, right? And he plays on the stuff that we do that is wrong. But there's a big difference between godly guilt and shame. Godly guilt is something that you did. Shame is when you are convinced that's who you are. Godly guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. Shame always leads to a disconnection from God and others and erects a wall that makes us want to hide. But we know that godly guilt or what the Bible calls godly sorrow leads to repentance. And repentance tears down walls that stand in the way of right relationships with God and others. Shame is the, is the voice of the accuser. It's called condemnation. But godly guilt is from our advocate, the Holy Spirit. It's called conviction. The accuser of the brethren, Satan, condemns us to keep us bound and separated from God and others by a wall of shame. But the advocate convicts us and gives us the courage to acknowledge our wrong and ask for forgiveness so that we can tear down the wall of shame. The wall of shame can get in between a husband and a wife, a parent and a child, two friends, a relationship with God, and any other God-sent and God-meant relationship. And if that wall of shame is not struck down, it will shipwreck what God has ordained to emerge from that relationship that he has set up. This is why we don't understand that that family relationships come under attack because the family is the most formidable relationship whereby our destiny is developed. And so because the enemy knows this, and contrary to popular belief, the best case scenario, the best case scenario for, for children is mommy and daddy. Okay. Now, I don't say that to convict anybody or to condemn anybody, I should say, who doesn't have that situation, but don't get it twisted. The best case scenario for every child is not mommy and mommy, it's not daddy and daddy, it's not daddy alone, it's not mommy alone. The best case for every child is mommy and daddy. Children need, children need what both a father brings and both what a mother brings in order to develop the healthiest way possible. Now, when things are out of a child's control, can God step in and become the father? Yes. Can God step in and become the mother? Yes. Can God do what man has abandoned and abdicated? Absolutely. But let's not use that as an excuse to not realize that the reason why family relationships and even marriage is under attack is because God uses relationships to assist us, and the enemy uses relationships to twist us. So how do we overcome the wall of shame and repair a relationship where that wall is standing in the way? That's the second part of the story of Peter and Jesus. And can I just tell you something? I'm so grateful for 
second parts of the story. I don't know if you're grateful for them. I'm grateful that God put puts commas where we put periods. I'm grateful that where we write the end, God writes to be continued. Matter of fact, I believe that's what Jesus was saying to Peter right at that moment when they locked eyes with one another. I believe that Jesus timed that look so that they locked eyes at the precise moment that the rooster crowed, not so that Peter would remember the prediction of his denial, but so that Peter would remember the promise of his resurrection. Say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Watch this. If if it just ended there, it would be a prediction of a problem. It would be a prediction of pain. It would be a prediction of a denial. But then he said, and when you have returned to me. How many of you know Peter heard that as well? Strengthen your brethren. In other words, I believe that Jesus timed that look not to be an advocate for the enemy that would deepen the depression that Peter was about to go through, but that would relieve Peter and help him to understand that that wall of shame doesn't have to stay there permanently because there's coming a day where you will come back from what you did that was wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm glad there are second parts to the story and that God puts to be continued where we put the end. That's the kind of God that we serve. So pastor, how, how is it that I, over, I overcome? That wasn't good timing. I was like, Ooh. overcome the wall of shame. Five things, and I'm only going to give you one. I'll give you the four others future weeks. And these all spell shame, but not in order. So you have to play word scramble, okay? The first one is M. Make the first move. Peter thought there was no hope. So he quit the ministry. He went back to the fishing business. He's being swallowed up by shame. Doesn't know Jesus has been resurrected. One of the first things on the Lord's mind after his resurrection, look at the scripture, Mark chapter 16. The angel appears to the women that come to the empty tomb. And they say, don't be alarmed. Yeah, easy, right? You see two angels. You're like, don't be alarmed. I'm like, duh. (laughs) Don't be alarmed. There's two angels standing in front of me. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they lay him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter. This is amazing to me. The, 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 the first thing on Jesus' mind, Jesus is like, he gets up from the grave. He's like, I got to find Peter. Please go tell Peter. Please somebody send a message to Peter. Doesn't he love us that much? I mean, we are on his mind even when we do something that's wrong. Please go tell Peter. Please go get Peter. He's the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Such a good shepherd. But watch this. He's got Peter on his mind. What does that mean? Jesus gives us an example of how to overcome the wall of shame. How to repair a broken relationship. Someone's got to make the first move. Here's what God told me about relationship repair a long time ago. It's a hard burden to bear sometimes. He said, the one that initiates reconciliation is the most like me. The one that initiates reconciliation is the most like me. 
Think about that. Now, that works for me because I'm kind of competitive. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm more like Jesus than you. My wife and I get in a tiff and I don't want to apologize. I'm like, I'm going to be more like Jesus. Right? But think about that. Isn't that what we're supposed to be? More like Jesus? But look at this. Jesus is, Jesus is totally like savage in any way. Not only does Jesus make the first move by sending an angel to hand deliver a message to Peter, he makes arrangements to meet with Peter. Peter and the other disciples have quit. They, they went, Peter's like, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples, being good friends, they're like, we'll go with you. And so they go with him. John chapter 21, as the sun was rising, Jesus stood at the water's edge, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Not only does he send a message to him, but the next thing he does is he goes to where he knows Peter's going to be. He puts himself on the path. Remember, Jesus does that. And here's what I love about it. He doesn't just make the first move to obliterate the wall of shame. He then does something that totally obliterates the wall of shame. Look at what this says, John chapter 21, verse number 5. Then he asked them, young men, haven't you caught anything? Not a thing, they answered. He said to them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will catch some. And so they threw the net out and they could not pull it back in because they had caught so many fish. See, what what is Jesus doing? This is a repeat occurrence of the first time that Jesus called Peter. First time that Jesus called Peter, he was fishing. He couldn't catch nothing. And uh, Jesus, he didn't know who Jesus was. Jesus was on the shore. And he goes, yo, fisherman dude, fisherman pro, having a tr- trouble catching some fish? Just, just throw your net on the other side. Peter's like, I fished all night. Look at this guy over here, carpenter boy, telling me how to fish. I'm going to take the net. Okay, nevertheless, that's your. He throws it over here. He catches all the fish. That becomes the basis of their relationship. And now, Peter's abandoned. The wall of shame is in the relationship. And Jesus not only sends a message, he not only goes to where Peter is, but he sets up a reenactment of the very first moment that they let, that they met. Jesus took it back to the beginning. Take it back. Do, 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 take it back, right? Jesus takes it. He says, let's run it back. Let's get it back. Let's start over. I'm giving you a redo because I realize that this relationship is worth repairing. I don't know who God is speaking to right now, but take it back. Run it back. Start it over. Give it a redo. If it's a relationship that God sent, then it is worth repairing. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Get rid of that wall of shame in your life. Don't let shame steal a destiny. Don't let it steal a relationship. If you are somebody who follows Christ, you ought to always leave opportunity in God set up relationships for reconciliation. Now, this we're being real careful about how we're saying this, right? And we're not talking about there are some people you don't need to forgive. Did you hear me say that? No. I just said there are some people you need to remove. I didn't say there are some people you don't need to forgive. And it is entirely possible to completely forgive but remove from a relationship. We'll talk about that in future time. I can't go any further because if I do, I won't do 
the rest of the teaching much justice. So that's a great place to stop because he's the God who makes the first move. Isn't that the God that you know? Isn't that the God that I know? God doesn't wait for us. God came to us before we ever asked him to. He left heaven. He came to earth. He stands at the door of our heart. He knocks. Many times when we're living life in the fast lane or on the Broadway that leads to hell. He stands at the door and he knocks. When we do wrong, we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit telling us what? Not that we're, not that we're bad, not that we're evil, but that we ought to come back and that we ought to get right and that we ought to ask God for forgiveness. God is always making that first move. That's the kind of God that he is. And maybe you're here today and maybe God is moving on your heart. Maybe you're not right with God at this moment and the biggest reconciliation, the biggest relationship repair that can ever take place is when you repair your relationship with God. Maybe you're watching at home and maybe your relationship with the Lord needs to be repaired. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe maybe you've stopped watching online, but you, you kind of decided you're going to do it this week. And maybe this becomes the step to you getting back in the house of God next week. Maybe you need to repair your relationship with the Lord. Maybe you don't know if you were to die today, whether you'd go to heaven. The greatest relationship repair is when we give our life to Jesus. Would you stand with me? If you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, if you're watching at home at our campuses, and you'd say, Pastor, today, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to have my relationship with God repaired. If that's you at home here, I just want you to hold your hands up to the Lord. Pastor, that's me. I need my relationship with him repaired. Hold them up. Don't be ashamed. Amen. That's awesome. Amen. That's awesome. I want to pray a prayer with those of you that have your hands up right now. Let's all say it together. Heavenly Father, I repent. I ask you to forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus, and I make him again my Lord and Savior. And I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. Maybe you're here and maybe you're in a relationship that is worth fighting for. Maybe you're a husband and a wife. Maybe you're a parent and a child. And there's a wall up right now. I want to encourage you from the bottom of my heart. Somebody make the first move. Somebody say, I'm sorry. Well, Pastor, I'm not wrong. Just say you're sorry anyway. Well, what good does that do? You know what the Scripture says? The Scripture says this, that when we suffer wrong and we're right, that makes us like our Heavenly Father. How many of you know on the cross, Jesus wasn't wrong? He could have said, what am I doing here? They did it for me. But for the sake of relationship with those that mattered and those that he loved, you know what he did? He in essence said, I'll take that penalty. I'll take the brunt of that. I want to encourage you if you're here, if you're watching online, and there's a relationship that is worth repairing, make that first step. Watch God bring that thing together. We pray that you'll do that. We wish you all God's love. We love each and every one of you. We will see you next week. God bless you.